0: Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today we have another special guest for you, Paul Moore. And he was actually a repeat guest who has come on again as a second interview for us. And today he's going to be talking about self-storage for us. If you want to go back and check out his episode, episode 146, he talked about the mobile home parks in that episode there. And so you can get a little bit more about his background. But Paul, welcome to the show today. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about self-storage and what you're doing in the space. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Eileen, it's great to be here again. Thanks for having me on. I'm am- amazed that I'm back and hope I don't bore your audience too much. Uh,
0: no, of course not. Last time we had a really great conversation about mobile home parks and I love what you're doing in the space and and all the information that you gave to us. And so I'd love to learn a little bit more about self-storage and yeah, just happy to have all this right. conversation with you.
1: Yeah, you know, like I said before, I was an apartment investor through and through. I wrote a book called The Perfect Investment. And this book just blew, you know, like it just gave all these reasons why people should invest in apartments. But let's face it, everything has a price that's too high. I mean, even Bitcoin, right? And seriously, everything has a price that, you know, was just not worth it. And apartments have been overpriced for a long time. And after years of beating my head up against the wall, looking for apartment buildings to invest in, I realized the market was just overheated for me. Now, a lot of people are still getting great deals and making them work. It just wasn't working for me. And so a friend of mine said, why haven't you checked out self-storage? And I said, "Uh, just, I I don't know. It looks like there's too many self-storage buildings around. You know, there are a lot of them. Did you know there are 53,000? self-storage facilities in the U.S., which is the same as McDonald's, Subway, and Starbucks combined. But Eileen, what I didn't know is that about half of them are run by mom-and-pop owners. And a lot of them are, they don't have the resources or the desire or the knowledge to improve income and maximize value. And as a result, there's a tremendous opportunity to acquire these facilities to upgrade them and significantly to return you know a significant profit to investors so that's the overview of why i love investing in self storage facilities
0: oh no that's really great that you put into perspective on how many self storages there are out there because a lot of people they they hear self storage who would use a self storage and like why would I want to invest in there and so when you put into the numbers that there's just as many self storages out there as there are McDonald's it really puts into perspective there is a really large demand for the space.
1: Yeah, it really is crazy and the, the I'll just hit this right up front. Everybody says, "Well, there's so many around, there's a new one being built across, you know, the street from my office or whatever." And that's true. Self storage just like real estate in general can be overheated in a certain area but it's very micro market specific i could take you to nashville eileen and show you why there are too many self-storage facilities i could also take you to a southern section of nashville around bellevue or belmont and show you why it's way underserved and why a self-storage facility there would be very very profitable and so it is very micro market specific, but that is the biggest downside, in my opinion, to self storage investing, and that is that somebody could build easily build a new facility by you. And so that's one of the things we analyze when we want to build a new facility or invest in a, in one. In our case, and that is, you know, are there opportunities for new? Is there land available? Are there opportunities for new facilities to be built nearby? That's what makes us nervous. I guess that's what you know would keep self-storage owners up at night. That's the downside. There's a lot of upside. How about if I go into a few of those things?
0: Yes, that'd be great. Thank you, Paul. All
1: right. So self-storage, when I had that first or second call with the guy who told me about it uh, years ago, he said, have you considered the value-add opportunities in self-storage? And I thought, what? Wait a minute. Apartments, They have, you can do new lighting, new fixtures, new countertops, cabinets, paint, wall coverings, new electronic stuff. But what are you going to do in a self-storage facility? You know, it has four pieces of sheet metal, a floor, and a door. What are you going to do there to upgrade? I mean, you just sweep it out and bring the next tenant in when somebody leaves. I had no idea it had tremendous upside potential in the value-add arena. And so what I mean by that is a lot of mom and pop self-storage facilities don't have U-Haul. Well, U-Haul may not be perfect everywhere, but when U-Haul works, if you can get a contract with a U-Haul rent truck rental place, you can do really, really well. And you can make up to $3,000, $5,000 a month in commission from having U-Haul trucks operated out of your facility. Well, let's say you can make $3,000 a month that's $36,000 a year and $36,000 a year. Remember the value formula we talked about before, I think in commercial real estate, the value is the net operating income divided by the rate of return or the cap rate. And so $36,000 a year by a cap rate of 6%, 36,000 by 0.06, that's 600,000 in increased value. Well, if you just got a self storage facility for 3 million let's say that's 2 million in debt plus a million in equity if you can increase the value by 600,000 by signing a contract and doing operations for U-Haul you just increase your ownership equity you just increase the value of that by 60% that's really powerful and there's other value add things you can do as well like raising rates to market levels adding marketing and website uh, a lot of mom and pop owners don't bother to have stuff like that. Building additional units, using vacant land to add boat and RV storage, getting a showroom where you sell locks, boxes, tape, and scissors—all kinds of things like that are value adds. Even selling, in, you know, tenant insurance is a great value add. And so, there's lots of ways to add value. And before we're done here, remind me to tell you a recent story of how this has been done. Now, one thing I love about self-storage, Eileen, is that the tenants are really sticky. And that means they typically don't leave. I mean, if I have a thousand dollar a month apartment and you're my landlord and you raise the rent 6%, you know, that's $60 a month, $720 a year, I might leave over that. But if you have a self-storage facility and you're renting me a unit for $100 a month and you raise it by 6%, then my $6 a month will probably not make me spend a Saturday, get a U-Haul truck, get a bunch of friends to move my treasures or junk down the street just to save $6 a month, especially when I'm on a month-to-month lease and I think, well, I'm probably going to move out soon anyway, as soon as I get a Saturday or a long weekend to you know, gather my stuff together. But often those people don't leave. In fact, self-storage is does really, really well in recessions and booms. Think about it. During booms, people are filling up their Amazon or Walmart card, and they need a place to store their stuff. During recessions, they're often downsizing. And they're moving from a 4,000 to a 2,000 square foot home or a 2,000 square foot home to an apartment, and they need a place to store their stuff. And so we honestly have seen that self-storage, though its I'm not saying it's perfect all the time, I am saying that it really does seem to be buffered. It seems like during a bad economy, things still work out pretty well. And lenders love self-storage. I mean, Freddie Mac... Fannie Mae, a lot of large lenders, they say that self-storage and mobile home parks have the lowest uh, default rate of all commercial real estate classes. And so the opportunity to borrow at low interest rates, uh, the opportunity to refinance, uh, the opportunity to you know just increase value for our investors, all of that's here. And these are some of the reasons we absolutely love self-storage.
0: Can you share the story that you had mentioned earlier about um, adding value?
1: Yeah. So just to give you a quick reminder, Wellings Capital, my company, we are a commercial real estate fund. And so we have investors coming in at fifty, dollars $100,000, $200,000. We pool that money together and we invest in large projects. For example, we invested in one in Beeville, Texas. Now, here's what here's how it came about. The uh, owners of the self-storage facility in the small town, unfortunately, had passed away and their five kids were all fighting and they owned this self-storage facility. And my operating partner, the company we uh, invest heavily with, called them and said, would you be interested in selling? And they said, you know, how soon can you be here? And so the owner jumped on the plane and he was in their office. I think it was the next day or the next week. And they agreed to sell their facility for two point four million dollars. Now they didn't have a website or at least a very good one uh, they their market their rates were twenty to thirty percent below the market levels. They had a lot of delinquency, like ten or fifteen percent of the people were not paying or were paying really late. Uh, they didn't have uh you know a showroom with all ancillary services. They didn't have u-haul. They had a lot of things going wrong, but actually it was a great location. It had about 600 uh, units. And so he bought it for $2.4 million, which was a totally fair price given how poorly it was run. Now, they found out later that it had been on the market with a realtor for like $5.3 million. And that was outrageous. That's why it didn't sell. But anyway, he went in. He put in beautiful marketing, beautiful website, great trained manager. Got rid of all the delinquent tenants, increased occupancy, increased uh, rates up to market level, you know, by 20% higher than they were. And that took several months to do that. And remember, he paid 2.4 million cash for it in March of 2019. By July of 2019, he had an appraisal on it for 4.6 million, up -hmm. from 2.4 million. And so he got a loan on that property for the first time. And he got a loan of $2 million. Now, $2 million up front on a $2.4 million purchase would have been a terribly high loan to value, and it would have been too risky for anybody to loan that much. But $2 million on a $4.6 million facility, just four months later, that was a reasonable loan. And of course, that's only like in the low 40s, 40 or 43%, I think. And so he got... He had now only had 400,000 of our cash and other people's cash left in this deal. Well, a year later, it was completely stabilized. It was running great for the year. He sold the property for the appraised value, $4.6 million. And those investors, which included our company and our investors, we had $400,000 in and the uh, sale price of, you know, 4.6 million dollars means that we had 2.6 million coming out so that was a very very nice return on investment and it all happened because we had a mom and pop seller we had a professional operator and the professional operator upgraded it and did all the changes to make it run like it should
0: we love hosting this show when we started this podcast we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Wow, that's an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing, Paul.
1: Absolutely.
0: And so how about from a location standpoint when you're looking at self-storage? Are they Mm -hmm. all in prime locations or are there certain locations that are they get more uh traffic going by um what are some mm-hmm. of the things that you're looking for in terms of location
1: yeah so we want to find a well-traveled street and if it's like in a big metro area you might want to get fifty thousand cars a day or more going by uh like if it's near a highway Or in a real small town like Beeville, Texas, or some of the smaller towns, you might only expect five or 10,000 cars a day, but you want it to be on a well-traveled road relative to the area. You want to have great visibility on that road. You don't want it to be down a hill or behind a Walmart or something where you can't see it. You also want to have at least the average income, hopefully higher than average income for the area uh, in a, say, a three-mile radius around it. And then you want to have, you want to make sure that the competition is not too high around there. And so what you do is you draw a circle, let's say three mile circle around the property, and you see how many facilities are in that circle, how many square feet of self-storage are offered in that, let's say three mile radius, and how many people are in that radius. And then you divide that And your goal is to be under about seven square feet, seven or eight square feet of storage per person in that radius. And that's the reason we say seven or eight is that's traditionally been the believed national average for self-storage usage. uh, And that's in small towns, large towns, et cetera. Uh, We believe it's seven or eight square feet per person. That's actually sort of an old number. So that number has gone up almost every year in the U.S. So it, it could be higher. Now, if you're in places like Southern California where you don't have basements, Texas where you don't have basements, Florida where there's no basements and it's too hot to use the attic, then it might be higher. It might be average use of 10 square feet per person. Uh, If you're in the Midwest, like Wisconsin, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, where they almost all have basement storage and it's not too hot, then it might be less than seven square feet per person. So you want to take that into account. Now, there is a software package that you can use. It's an app called Radius Plus, and Radius Plus does those radius calculations for you.
0: Oh, great. And so what kind of the, what kind of markets are you interested in while you're looking at the different self-storage options?
1: Yeah, well, interestingly, some of the big markets like uh Dallas or Houston or Greenville, South Carolina, Austin, a lot of those places, Charlotte, Nashville have been overbuilt and a lot of the REITs, they can uh, afford to drop their prices as low as they need to either buy up or drive out the competitors. And so we sort of like out-of-the-way places a little more. Like we have facilities we just sold out of our fund. I mentioned Beeville, Texas. Uh, Also Pullman, Washington. Places, you know, Grand Junction, Colorado. Places like that. There's just not much risk where there's going to be a large national competitor coming in next door. So if I had to choose one place to invest, it would be... A small to mid-sized town that's underserved, or I like the idea, like I said, of Nashville, where you get the town that's overserved in general, but an area where zoning, or the local government, has really kept self-storage out. We have a place in Ramsey, Minnesota, like that, where the local government has said, okay, all self-storage has to be in industrial parks only. Well, we loved building there because we had a plot of land that was already approved for storage that was on the main boulevard in the town.
0: Oh, that makes sense. And so for an investor who's looking to get started in self-storage, what are some of the things that they should be considering before they get started?
1: So, and do you mean going as a passive investor or an operating investor?
0: As a passive investor.
1: Yeah, I think that it's always most important to look carefully at the operator. Who are you giving your money to? Because a great operator can take a mediocre deal and make it go well. A terrible operator can ruin the best deal out there. So spend a whole lot of time getting to know them, go to see them in person, look at their financials, look at their debt structure, analyze their character, see what other people have to say about them, dive deep. And if you want some help on that, you could go to Brian Burke. Brian Burke, B-U-R-K-E, his new book is The Hands-Off Investor. And the hands-off investor can really help analyze a syndicator uh, or an operator that you're going to give your money to. Another place to go is the real estate crowdfunding review. And the real estate crowdfunding review is not just for crowdfunding. It's anybody who wants to invest in syndications. This website analyzes the syndicators' reviews and rates them to get them to show people what they've been like in the eyes of other investors.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I love Brian's book. He's he's a really amazing person overall. And, and yeah. his book just has so much valuable content in there.
1: Yeah, it really does.
0: So is there anything else from a self-storage standpoint that we should consider before getting started in self-storages?
1: Yeah. I mean, so your amount of effort you have to expend, Eileen, on checking out the location and the facility. Is in inverse proportion to how well you know and how much you love the syndicator or the operator, or whatever you want to call them. And what I mean by that is, if you know them, they have an incredible track record. They've got this dialed in. They've got the team. They've got the the numbers. They've got the debt. Everything they have. Excuse me. If everything they have is proves out, and they've got a long track record, then You can honestly, especially if they have skin in the game and they invest their own cash, you can really know that it's really likely they're going to do the right thing. Now, if you don't know the operator as well, I'd be really careful investing. But I would say that if you really think you have a great feeling about the operator, but there's a few things that you're just not sure of, go check it out yourself. Go on Google Maps, go on Google Earth, do all that but go in person as well and check out the location, drive around, talk to competitors, talk to the local planning and zoning board. Uh, One time I did that, we were all ready to invest a couple million dollars and we just had to do the in-person check. And I got there and I drove around and I met a lot of competitors. I just told them I was thinking about investing in self-storage in the area. I also went to the county planning and zoning and city planning and zoning board to see if there were competitors slated to come in that weren't obvious, and I found out that there were two brand new large competitors being built nearby. I drove by one of those and saw the building going up, but we weren't told that by the operator. So that was a strike against the operator, Eileen. They actually didn't know it because they were located in a different city as well, but. It also made us withdraw from this investment. We decided not to invest. And even though this investor, excuse me, the syndicator had a great track record, they did not know about this. They missed this. And it's really made us wary about them. And we had to tell all those investors, hey, we're not taking your money. We're not going to do this. I'm so glad we didn't do it because it's always better to miss an opportunity and be wrong than to invest in an opportunity and be wrong.
0: Oh, no, I think that's really, really great advice. Thank you so much, Paul. Yeah,
1: you bet, Eileen. This is great.
0: And so from your standpoint, you know, how do you see the self-storage market looking like, you know, in the next couple months and what you're focused on in that space?
1: Yeah, so as I look at this, I mean, the pandemic and everything has made me nervous about investing in ground-up deals. And so we're not even though ground-up deals will be fine, the biggest risk for self-storage is while you're filling it up, while you're leasing it up, not a stabilized one. So it's made us really hesitant to do any more uh, ground-up development investing. I also will say that during the pandemic, there's been all these eviction moratoriums and such. Well, that could change, but as of now, Eileen, there's no eviction moratoriums on self-storage i mean there may be somewhere in the country i've never heard of one and so the self-storage facilities are actually doing quite well uh and they're not being forced to uh have those eviction problems that apartments and other assets do
0: oh thank you paul and i really appreciate everything that you shared today about self-storage and so if our listeners wanted to find out more about you and what you do paul where can they go
1: well, they can actually get a, an ebook on self storage investing at slash resources. That's W E L L I N G S capital.com forward slash resources. And we'll give you a free ebook on self storage and another one on mobile home park investing if people are interested.
0: Thank you so much, Paul. And I'm so glad that you came on and wanted to spend a second time with us on this interview. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Eileen, this has been great. I really appreciate you. You're a great host and uh, look forward to hopefully chatting with you someday again.
0: Thank you, Paul. And thank you for listening to our podcast today brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We'd really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to BonifestCapital.com and fill out the Contact Us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.